So hear these words from 1 Samuel chapter 15. And Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish the Amalekites for what they did in opposing the Israelites when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and attack Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both men and women, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So we cannot get into today the whole issue of God's terrible judgment and the topic of Haram. But our story here opens to highlight a contrast that has been developing between the Israelites and the Amalekites. We're kind of jumping in the middle here. We've skipped 14 chapters. But the Amalekites, not 14, like four. Uh, but the Amalekites are fighting to get rich. The king, Agag, has decided that he is going to attack Israel. And my friends, this may strike us as harsh, but the Amalekites are not invading Israel to build schools. They're not invading Israel to let them keep their stuff. They are fighting to pillage and destroy. So this command is for Israel a command that they can only defend. In this destruction, Israel is told they will take no bounty whatsoever. If they decide from their vanquished foes that they want to take a donkey, a camel, they will have violated God's commandment. Now there's also more background here in the Old Testament because as we have in verse 2, I will punish the Amalekites for what they did in opposing the Israelites when they came up out of Egypt. We're in the middle of a racial rivalry. Those are not new to our century. The Amalekites, before any of these events had happened, had already tried to wipe out Israel. And if you continue to read the Bible from this point forward, they're going to do it again later. In the book of Esther, this issue even comes back because Haman, the key bad guy, is the son of the Amethylite king here. But even more, Mordecai, the hero of the book of Esther, is a descendant of Saul. And if you remember what Haman tries to do in the book of Esther, he tries to kill every single Jew. And he even gets the king of Persia to sign the execution order. But I think Esther gives us the key to what's really going on here. And that's that Haman, in the end of that book, is hung on his own gallows. When he tries to kill all the Jews, Haman's fate comes upon his head. So the judgment God is giving here on the Amechalites is they are going to be hung from their own rope. They have come to destroy everything Israel has. So God, in his terrible, terrible judgment that we cannot soften, has said everything the Amalekites have and are will be destroyed. Yet, as we continue in the story, you will see mercy is at play. We tend to just latch onto the judgment and miss the other thing that's going on. The fact we have a book of Esther, Haman shows that the Amalekites are not wiped out. 
And in fact, every time the word haram, which is totally and utterly destroy, happens, we tend to find in the Old Testament, God has mercy, and you still find Canaanites running around and different tribes that have been doomed to destruction. But you also find in that mercy, God's judgment rests on Israel. Joshua is judged because he accidentally grants mercy. Israel is judged because it disobeys this order. And I think what, what the ancients are trying to teach us in all this is that this war Saul is engaging on, it's not a holy war. It's not a crusade in which they get pardons for all of their sins in going and defeating the Amalekites. Because Israel is going to show that they're not going to obey God. God's going to show that even through this terrible commandment, he's going to have mercy. But the Israelites are going to find themselves guilty in that mercy. It's a complex thing that they're calling us to. It's like if you are pardoned by a crooked judge, God may will your pardon. He may will the mercy, but is the judge forgiven for being corrupt? Saul here is going to show mercy inadvertently, and God's going to call him out for his corruption. But Saul's mercy is also going to show just how bad he is. Because as the book of Proverbs says, nothing is crueler than the tender loving mercy of the wicked. But that's the main thing with all these wipe them out sections. Israelite, Israel is not coming out as holy crusaders. So we continue with verse, verses 4 through 9. So Saul summoned the people and numbered them in Telem, 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 soldiers of Judah. Saul came to the city of the Amalekites and lay in wait in the valley, and Saul said to the Kenites, Go, leave, withdraw from among the Amalekites, or I'll destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites withdrew from the Amalekites. And Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. He took King Agag of the Amalekites alive, but Saul utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. Saul and the people spared Agag the king and the best of the sheep and of the cattle and of the fatlings and the lambs. In fact, all that was valuable, they would not destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, the Israelites utterly destroyed. So here we see the judgment on Israel and the sin. Israel was to defend. They were told to destroy so they would not be enriched by war. It was the Amalekites who planned a war where they would go get rich and take all the stuff. And Israel in executing its right to defend, would not get rich. But what happens? How's that judgment here twisted? Israel becomes like bandits. We read that they only hurt the weak. They don't bother with the strong men. They take them captive. Don't fight with us. We won't fight with you. They're perfectly willing to burn down the little hovels, but they'll move into the big, nice mansions. They don't steal the sick donkeys because they... They need an emergency transport. They take the good ones. They sort through the cows and pick all the best. So here we see how God's harsh command against the Amalekites 
is really starting to come back on Israel and Saul. These folks who would be holy warriors have proven to be anything but. So we continue with 10 through 13. The word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not carried out my commands. And Samuel was angry. Samuel cried out to the Lord all night, and Samuel rose early in the morning to meet Saul, and Samuel was told, Saul went to Carmel, where he set up a monument for himself, and on returning he passed down onto Gagal. And when Samuel came to Saul, Saul said to Samuel, May you be blessed by the Lord. I have carried out the command of the Lord. Saul's got blood on his hands. He has not obeyed. What does this blessing and obedience of Saul mean? Continues in 14, Samuel calls out Saul. But Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of sheep in my ears and the lowing of cattle that I hear? Saul said, the men have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and the cattle to, to sacrifice to the Lord your God, but the rest we have utterly destroyed. Then Samuel said to Saul, Stop. I will tell you what the Lord said to me last night. Saul said, Speak. And Samuel said, Though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you, Saul, king over Israel. And the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you swoop down on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I've obeyed the voice of the Lord. I've gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me, and I've brought Agag, the king of the Amalek, and I've utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But from the spoil of the people took sheep and cattle and the best of things devoted to destruction to, to sacrifice to the Lord, your God, and Gagal. And Samuel said, Has the Lord a great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices? Does he delight in those as much as in obedience to the voice of the Lord? Surely to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is no less a sin than divination or witchcraft, and stubbornness is like inequity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you, Saul, from being king. Whew. So Saul's defense to claim out when he's called out by the prophet, is that he's being pious. Oh, I, I was saving all the good stuff for sacrifice, you know. And uh, to Samuel's credit, he doesn't try to call him out. As we'll see in a little bit, I doubt Saul's motive here. He just points out that obedience is better than religion. When we are dealing with the Lord in all things, be it as a king marching to war, as in our daily lives, obedience, actually doing what he asked, always pleases the Lord more than asking for forgiveness for it later. 
But Saul shows his sin is very deep when he defends himself. Because notice how he defends himself. He could have just obeyed, but his defense is that he's going to use religion to do it. His men have gone out like robbers and plunderers, and his defense is, my religion, my religiosity, my righteousness, and my love for you, Lord, is why we did it. Huh. And as we see, I don't think Saul's even telling the truth here, because as we get to verse 24, Saul said to Samuel, I've sinned. I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord in your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. So now we find out the real reason Saul was letting people take stuff. He feared his soldiers. He feared that if he wasn't paying enough, they might wander off. Verse 25, now that Saul's being honest, now therefore I pray, pardon my sin and return with me so that I may worship the Lord. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. We all have forgiveness, but as Saul is going to learn a terrible truth, the Lord's patience comes to an end. There is a time when there's no longer a moment to repent. And Saul now will learn this terrible truth in verse 27. As Samuel turned to go away, Saul caught hold of the hem of his robe and it tore. And Solomon said to Saul, I'm sorry, and Samuel said to Saul, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this very day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who's better than you. Moreover, the glory of Israel will not recant or change his mind. God is not a mortal that he should change his mind. Then Saul said, I have sinned. Yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel, and return with me so that I may worship the Lord your God. And Samuel turned back after Saul, and Saul worshiped the Lord. Then Samuel said, Bring Agag, king of the Amechalites, here to me. So Saul has already confessed that he was not keeping the best stuff for sacrifice. He was even throwing his religious excuse on top of his deeper pressed issue that he was scared of his men, that he was trying to pay them off. But even that is not the full truth. Even as he confesses all this, we have King Agag, who comes strutting up in chains. You see, there's only one reason to keep a king alive and kill the weak peasants. <laughs> Saul didn't care an ounce about the Lord's judgment, but he did care about politics. He didn't care about having King Agag. Who cares if they had been racial enemies and the Amethylites had destroyed the Israelites and there were all sorts of cultural incompatibilities? But if he had Agag in his back pocket, well, what happens is Moab or Ethereum backs up. Saul wanted allies, even if they were evil. And that's who Samuel calls up. So we continue to the end on 32. Samuel said, bring King Agag, king of the Amechalites, here to me. And Agag came to him haltingly. 
Agag said, Surely this is the bitterness of death. But Samuel said to the wicked king, As your sword has made women childish, childless, so your mother shall be childless among women. And Samuel hewed Agag in pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. Then Samuel went to Ramah, and Saul went up to his house in Geba of Saul. And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death, but Samuel grieved over Saul. And the Lord was sorry that he had made Saul king over Israel. So Samuel, in his final act before Saul, has to take on the justice that God wanted in the first place. God had wanted to judge Agag. I doubt that he really cared much about the sins of the peasants, but the evil rulers were what he wanted Saul to chase away. The king, the supposed one of Israel, that's supposed to see that sort of thing, who does he spare? But the very evil king that has set the war in motion. And I think it's also telling that Samuel takes matters into his own hands, because the big lesson in chapter 15 is nobody comes out clean. We, we want it to all come out squishy and, and good, and David will give us some of that, because, you know, bad guy, good guy, David has a lot more of that in his story. But this story of Saul, everybody's messy. It's hard. And the applications of this are messy, and they are hard. But we will try to look at some of them. Now, most of us, I realize, are not going to end up president of the United States, so war ethics gets a little bit interesting. We still, as citizens, have a right to think about them. And I think this applies the most to ethics of war and nations and things that, well, they're uncomfortable. We don't like talking about people who think different than us, but they affect our lives. And I think the key thing here is God does not smile on people who seek enrichment through conflict. It is sad, but sometimes even that in and of itself is a controversial statement. But I think everything that can be enrichment from war is fruit of the poison tree. Now this does not mean that blacksmiths shouldn't get paid. Saul, in one of his first acts of king, as king, sends the Israelites to the Philistines to go buy swords. This doesn't mean that we all have to wear sackcloth and roll in the ash to be ethical between nations and all that sort of thing. But what I'm trying to get at is that war itself is one of the four horsemen. War itself is not ethical. War itself is evil and doomed for destruction of being tossed in the pit. And even the best and brightest heroes that have ever engaged in it would sing Alleluia to see war itself pitched into the fire. And the one thing that the people who have experienced can tell us, and what this passage points out, is that commandment, thou shalt not kill, it keeps its teeth, even in the face of this command to destroy that God starts the chapter with. Even with this seeming let loosing of the dogs of hell, God's commandments still keep their teeth. God is still judging hearts. Yes, he will let the nations defend themselves. Sometimes he even calls them to do it. 
But he never gives us grace to become like the attackers. He never allows war profiteering as a spirit in politicians, in commanders and generals sink in. That's what costs Saul his job. Now, most of the people in the pews today are not Shermans or Trumans or Eisenhowers. Yet I think those men's decisions show us the practical application on this. Because Sherman, he destroyed the fighting capacity. He went in total war. Destroyed the railroads in Atlanta. But he did it from a spirit of ending the conflict. And the nation that arose from the Civil War was united. People used to say, I can't remember what it is, but you used to not say that I'm American. You used to not used to say the United States. It was separate states into different countries. And Sherman, in his ethical application of total destruction, left a nation that could, could become brothers. And we see the same things in World War II. We were fighting deepest, blackest evil. We were fighting Nazis and the hatred of men. But how did we respond when the final shells stopped falling? We rebuilt those nations on whom we were called to bring judgment. And look at the blessings that have come from those actions. We faced our own racial demons, our own inequalities. We have built in Europe allies, and we have had an untold era of peace. But I can also give you a counterexample, familiar from the hymn that we sang today, of when that sense of war profiteering sinks in. Think of those nations at the end of World War I, who even after the US told them we should build peace, asked for reparations, asked to be paid back, asked for penalties. And think of the damage that caused. Now we can make this applicable too, to our personal walk, and this is where I really want to get it today. We are told in scripture, return not evil for evil, and revenge is the Lord's. But how many personal little wars are people fighting all over the place? Say a brother or a sister offends. Now you have a right and a duty as a Christian to say sin is sin. But my friends, judgment comes if we stoop to other people's level in our petty personal wars. God would have you rise to his level, and in fact, he commands it. Jesus speaks to all of us, you are bought at a price, and he warns each and every one of us, you will be forgiven as you forgive. So for all of those redeemed in Christ, dropping to their level is a very high bar. We are to forgive seven by 77 times, and the Lord favors obedience, not sacrifice. Sinners sin against us because they are outside the love of God. Rest assured, there may be times when that full Old Testament judgment may even be upon them. But my friends, your duty, your ethics, is to remain inside God's love yourself to not fall into that Old Testament judgment. We are to be spiritual people who see in our personal conflicts and our struggles with other people that the devil is playing cards. He is a liar, he is an accuser, and he is trying to bring death and judgment upon souls. 
He doesn't need to use the big movements of nations. He can use family members, fellow brothers in Christ. My friends, you will have no excuse if you accuse and judge to kill souls and join him in his actions. Because if Amalek comes to kill souls and Israel is told to resist evil, but is judged when it steps into Amalekites and Agag steps, we will be judged the same. Because we have to ask, are we a nation that is very different from the pagan ones? Are we an assembly of people who will act different than an assembly of airplane hobbyists? How many of us go home and wish that we had more grudges, more unforgiveness, more personal strife in our churches? And we know that that's the one thing that's lacking to help make us effective witnesses in the world. How many of us say, man, I wish that my kids, you know, didn't like me more. We all sense deep down inside that these grudges, these needing of the power of apologies over one another are not conducive to not just Christian love, but a peaceful household. Because see, when we, when we need these apologies, when we can't just forgive, it gets dangerously like Saul's spirit. When we get the apology, when we get the power, when we get the person to behave as we want them to behave, we get into power dynamics. And my friends, I would warn you even against being sensitive. How many Christians and how many churches are sensitive, looking, feeling out with little lobster feelers for insults, for something to get hurt on? That's the spirit of bandits seeking to get in. We must banish the evil of offense, the evils of our personal wars, the evil of the hurt itself. And my friends, we must kill those evils. We must kill hurt. We must kill pain. We must kill all those things with terrible Old Testament judgment. Let strife and envy the works of the devil. Let them be consumed in nuclear fire. And my final warning on this is your status as children of the king, just as Saul's status of king of Israel depends on this. Oh, we weaken this forgiveness thing. We, we come and we say, Lord, oh, I really wish I could do it, but I just can't forgive this, Bob, this guy. Remember what happened to Saul. He was cast off and he was no longer king. When we sit there and we go to the Lord and we say, Lord, I want to get to the point where I can forgive people. We are offering sacrifices, not obedience. And you are children of the king. You have been empowered by Christ and his Holy Spirit to obey. And you must obey or you will find the church and the kingdom is ripped out of your hands as Saul's, Samuel's role that day. How will our nation fare? Let us pray. Dear Lord Jesus, you are again a God of peace. We pray that your scepter may sway from ocean to ocean. We pray that if it ever comes to the hard fights, that we and our nation will look to you and to your guidance and your ever-supplying hand. But we pray also that you may smash the swords and the plowshares and that you may end the ceaseless grudges and infighting. Lord, build in your people a spirit of obedience, not trying, but of doing. For that is our faith and our power through your Son. 
We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.